Take a Bible out this morning, find John chapter 10. We're going to read a scripture together in a few minutes, and then throughout the morning we're going to refer back to John 10, so keep your page marked there. There are some notes you can follow along in the bulletin with what we're going to discuss. John 10, I just want to start out by making sure you understand and we're all on the same page that John 10 is connected to the story that we talked about the last couple of weeks in John 9. These two stories go together. There's a question in John 21, and it connects the dialogue that we're about to read this morning with the miracle story we read about Jesus healing the blind man in John chapter 9. So just to jump to the end of our text, John 10 where we're going to end about halfway through, ends with an argument. Okay, There's an argument taking place among the people who are listening to Jesus, looking at Jesus. And the argument is, who is this guy? You've got a group of people who propose the theory, he's possessed by a demon. You've got another group of people who propose the theory, he's crazy, he's insane, he's mentally unstable, he's unhinged. You got a third group of people, they don't really propose a third way, they just sort of want to pump the brakes and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. He doesn't, he doesn't talk like a crazy guy. We know crazy guys. He doesn't sound like a crazy guy. And he's not doing the kinds of things demon-possessed people normally do. We, we've seen demon-possessed people, we know how they act. Jesus is healing blind men doesn't really seem rational to say that he's demon-possessed or that he's crazy. And so they're just sort of pumping the brakes, saying, I'm, I'm just not sure about it. Verse 21, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And when they talk about a blind person having their eyes open, they're talking about the story we spent the last couple of weeks looking at in John 9. I just need you to file that away in your brain because it's going to be an important piece of what we hear Jesus say here in John 10. One more piece of the puzzle that puts the setting together for us. If you look at John 10, verse 22, it says, at that time the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. John 22, referring to the feast of dedication, that's what we call Hanukkah. You won't read about Hanukkah in the Old Testament because it hadn't happened yet. It hadn't been instituted yet or established yet. Hanukkah is a Jewish feast, a Jewish celebration. It came into existence after the the Old Testament sort of was wrapped up, before the New Testament picks up with Jesus in this intertestamental period, as Bible scholars call it. And what I need you to know is that Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, was celebrated in December which means it's three to four months until the Passover, and Jesus is going to die at the Passover. The next Passover, Jesus dies, which means in John 9 and 10, when Jesus heals this blind man and he says the things that we're about to read, you're about three to four months away from the cross. Jesus knows that it's coming, and in John 10, he begins to speak very plainly about what's coming in his death and even in his resurrection. Now, just a few big picture things about the Gospel of John I want you to see. We've talked about some of this along the way in our series. The Gospel of John includes seven sign stories. 
There are seven stories in the Gospel of John that fall under this heading of Jesus performed a sign. And the idea of a sign is that it's some sort of miracle Jesus performs. It's not just a neat trick. It's supposed to teach you something important about who Jesus is. And these signs are central to what John is trying to do in this book. Look at John 20, 30 to 31. John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He did lots of things, miraculous things that were amazing to see and that taught us important truth about who Jesus is. John says he did lots of stuff, but the ones I've recorded, and there's seven of them, are written in this book for a purpose. It's not just to impress you, but it's so that you would come away believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's the signs that John records for us. Jesus turns water to wine. He heals a nobleman's son. He heals a lame man. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water. Only the disciples saw that sign. It wasn't public. He heals the blind man. That's what we saw in John 9. And then one more sign to come. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Seven signs put in this book so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that when you believe that, you would have life. Some of you this morning, that may be the most important thing that you need to hear. That's it. That there was a man named Jesus, sent from God, fulfillment of the prophecy Jake read in Isaiah, the one that John the Baptist was pointing to that Corey read from John 1 earlier, and he came, and he came that you would have life. And these things that we're talking about are written so that you could believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And when you believe that he's the Christ, the Messiah, you have life in his name. That changes the way you celebrate Christmas. And maybe for the very first time, you need to celebrate Christmas knowing Jesus, knowing life. So there's seven signs. There's also, in the Gospel of John, big picture, I am statements. And? John is a type A personality, so he gives us seven signs, and he gives us seven I am statements. I like structure. I like order. I like things to all be nice and neat, and John does that for us. Here's the I am statements. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door and the good shepherd. Those two are both in our passage this morning. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. And so this morning, that brings us to the big idea, very simple, Jesus is the good shepherd. Some of you are saying, well, shouldn't we also include the part about the door? We're just going to say Jesus is the good shepherd. When we get to that in a minute, I'll explain to you why that covers both of these I am statements. Jesus is the good shepherd. So I like to read the text, John chapter 10, you can follow along. Beginning in verse 1, we'll go down to verse 21. This is the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door of the, sh the shepherd is the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand 
what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. He'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them, the sheep, and he scatters them. Excuse me, the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I laid down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock One shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That's the word of God for us this morning. We're going to pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the gospel of John. We're thankful that these things are true. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see. We read this this discussion that takes place after these people listen to Jesus. They come away debating and, and arguing about who he is. And Father, we pray this morning for eyes to see exactly who Jesus is, that he's the Christ, that he's the Son of God. And Lord, we want to walk away believing, and by believing, having life in Jesus' name. So we ask that you would make these things true, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to approach things a little bit differently than we normally do. I don't have any sort of story to tell you, no historical anecdote. What I want to do is trace a theme through the Bible quickly. We're not going to go as in-depth as we could, but I want to trace a theme through the Bible. Then I want to make a few points, just pulling them straight off the page as Jesus has talked about what it means that he's the good shepherd. And then I want to trace a second theme, a second idea through the Bible And in the end, what I hope happens is that we see that these two themes actually unite in Jesus Christ right here in John chapter 10. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And we picked this Sunday to take the Lord's Supper because it's so fitting as Jesus talks about laying down his life for his sheep. It's a perfect fit with what we're going to celebrate in the Lord's Lord's Supper. So here's the first theme. I just want you to think about shepherds in the Bible. I just want you to take a minute and think about shepherds. I would suggest to you that our first parents, Adam and Eve, essentially were shepherds. 
They were farmers, yes. They were to care for the garden, but they also were to care for the animals, and they were given the task of naming the animals. And the Bible is very clear that Adam and Eve's son Abel was a keeper of sheep. This first family that you meet in the Bible is a shepherding family. I don't think that's just coincidence. Moving on, you think about Moses, the great deliverer of God's people, this man who led the great rescue of the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. What did he do for 40 years, four decades, before the Lord sends him back to Egypt? He's living in Midian, and he is helping to take care of his father-in-law's flocks. He's a shepherd taking care of sheep. For four decades before the Lord sends him back and he he leads the people out in the Exodus. What about David? Right? The great rescuer was a shepherd. The great king in the Old Testament was a shepherd. Youngest son of Jesse. His brothers teased him at times because his job while they were off fighting was to stay home and take care of, as they called it, those few sheep that you have back in Bethlehem. You stay back and you take care of of those sheep. And we read stories about David fighting off bear and fighting off lions and protecting the sheep. He was a shepherd. He wrote Psalm 23. It's famous to us. It was famous in ancient Israel. It may be the best known song in the Bible, and it begins with the line that you know, the Lord is my shepherd. And through David, God is trying to teach his people something important. He's teaching them, I want you, when you think about me, to think about a shepherd. Right? God could have picked any profession, any job, any metaphor, any image that he wanted to use. And in this one psalm, David, the shepherd king, says, I want you to think about the Lord, Yahweh, your God, as the shepherd of his people. What about the prophets? You get to the prophets and they say a lot of things about shepherds. And one of the things that comes up over and over and over again is the prophets say, it's really unfortunate that we don't have any good shepherds in Israel. And they were not talking about men or women who would go out and actually take care of sheep. There were people doing that. What they were talking about is spiritual leaders who would stand up for the truth, who would love God's people, who would proclaim there is only one God and his name is Yahweh and you should serve no other God. There was no one to do that. And people like Ezekiel spoke up and said what Israel really needs is a faithful shepherd. Ezekiel 36 The prophet talks about the new covenant. He says a day is coming where God's going to change the hearts of his people. Ezekiel 37, he says the day is coming where the Spirit of God is going to cause those who are spiritually dead to come back to life. This valley of dry bones is going to be a living, vast, powerful army. And in Ezekiel 37, the prophet says God is going to send a shepherd. The shepherd's going to unite God's people. The shepherd's going to lead God's people. That shepherd, he says, is going to be just like David, a king, a shepherd king. This idea of the shepherd continues even into the New Testament with the term pastors. Our English word pastor comes from a Latin word, but the Greek root, if you look it up in the New Testament, is poimain, and it literally means shepherd. The job of a pastor is to be 
a shepherd. Not like he's in charge of the sheep. The New Testament is very clear that a pastor is an under-shepherd. There's one shepherd over the flock, and the pastors serve underneath that shepherd as an under-shepherd, and their job is to shepherd the flock of God. All the way through the Bible, you trace this theme of a shepherd. It keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. You can't get away from it, and it's no coincidence that here in John 10, towards the end of his life, of all of the images that Jesus could pick, One of the things he says to his followers is, I am the good shepherd. And I just need you to understand that when Jesus says those words, all the way back to the book of Genesis, God has been preparing the hearts and the minds of his people to hear that. He's been shaping what they think about a shepherd and what the job of the shepherd is and what the role of the shepherd is and who the shepherd's going to be. All of that's in their minds and their hearts when Jesus looks at his followers, and he tells them, I am the good shepherd. And so I want you to see a few truths. Truth about the good shepherd from John 10. Number one, the good shepherd warns his people about thieves, robbers, hired hands, and wolves. He warns them. Look at John 10, 10. I'm going to suggest something here to you this morning that might make you think I'm off my rocker a little bit, depending on how you've been taught. We can can argue about it later, and I can prove to you how right I am. But John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. All my life, I've heard people quote that verse about Satan. This is a verse about the devil. He is the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And look, there's a reason that people might make that association. If you back up in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been talking about six months earlier. He's been talking publicly about the devil. And he told the Jews, you're children of the devil. And he said, he's a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar from the beginning. I just don't think John 10.10 is about the devil at all. I can think back to one of the most entertaining, in fact, I would say it's the most entertaining sermon I've ever heard in my life. I was at a youth camp in Oklahoma. It was midweek. The speaker got up. I won't tell you who he is, but I remember it very vividly. He preached a sermon on John 10.10. That was the text, one verse. And the whole sermon was about Satan. And I'm telling you, it was very entertaining. It was like going to a comedy show. It was funny, we laughed, he had great stories. It just wasn't very biblical. Because I don't think John 10.10 is about Satan. No one in John 9 is talking about Satan. No one in John 10 other than this possible reference is talking about Satan. I've already made the point to you, when you get to John 10.21, they're talking about somebody who's opened the eyes of a blind man. They're thinking about what Jesus has just done in healing this blind man. And do you remember where the story ended for the blind man? The spiritual leaders in his life excommunicated him from the synagogue. Why? Because he wouldn't confess secret sin in his own life, and he wouldn't accuse Jesus of sin either. And they kick him out. 
you turn the page to this chapter, John 10, 10, you got to remember it's connected to John 9, and I think Jesus has taken a clear shot at the religious leaders in John 9, 9 who kicked this guy out of the synagogue. Basically, he's calling them phonies. You're all a bunch of fakes. You have the title. You have the seminary degree. You have the office at the synagogue. Everyone recognizes you as a spiritual leader, but really, I think what Jesus is saying, you're a thief, you're a robber, you're a hired hand, and maybe even you're a wolf. I think Jesus is warning everyone who's listening, I'm the good shepherd, but you need to understand there are false shepherds out there, and you got to pay attention because they have the title. And they got a piece of paper that says they graduated. And maybe they have a business card or the right profile, profile on their social media page. You know, sort of the, the, the right name. Everything looks like it's in place, but they're not real shepherds. I think it makes much more sense to take this verse as a warning against false shepherds, false teachers, than to sort of insert Satan into the middle of John 10. Now, is Satan a a thief and a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He's all of those things. There's no question about that. The question is, what is Jesus talking about? I think he's warning about false shepherds. They were around in Jesus' day. They're around in our day. You can find them lots of places. You can find them at seminaries. You can find them on the Internet. You can find them teaching Sunday school classes. You can find them standing up in front of congregations on a Sunday morning claiming to speak the word of the Lord but really explaining away the word of the Lord. They're everywhere. And the good shepherd wants us to be aware of that and he's warning us. There's lots of these warnings in the Bible. The Apostle Paul, the last time he met with the elders at the church in Ephesus, he got down, he prayed with them on the the shores of the beach and he looked those people in the eye and he said, I'm telling you, that wolves are going to come. They're not going to be dressed as wolves. They're going to be dressed in sheepskin. But they're coming. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to his protege, Timothy, he says, Timothy, you need to watch out. Timothy, there's people who are going to come, and they're going to be quarrelsome people. They're going to want to argue about everything. Timothy, these people are going to always be learning, but they're never going to arrive at the truth. Watch out for those people, Timothy. You're the pastor. You're the shepherd. You've got to watch out for them. The brother of Jesus, Jude, wrote a very short letter. It's at the end of our New Testament, right before the book of Revelation. And he said, I wanted to write to you guys about the common salvation we have in Jesus. Instead, I've got to write to you and I've got to remind you that certain people have crept in, false teachers. You haven't noticed them, but they're there. False shepherds, they're right there in your presence. Jesus is warning us, I am the good shepherd, but you've got to watch out for false shepherds. Secondly, the good shepherd knows his sheep. So he warns us, and now we we move to some more positive news, some encouraging news. He knows his sheep. Look at verse 3. It says, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. 
Verse 4, he, he brings all of his own out and he goes before them. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. There's a relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. He knows them. He knows the, the names of his sheep. Look at verse 14. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. I know my people, Jesus says, and they know me. Verse 16, he says, I even have other sheep. They're not of this fold. Most scholars think that's the Gentiles. I have sheep. They don't even know me yet, but I know them. And I'm going to bring them, and we're all going to be together in one flock. The shepherd knows his sheep. All of this made perfect sense to people who were listening to Jesus in first century Palestine. In most Western nations, shepherds drive the sheep. They get behind the sheep, and they hit them on the backside, and maybe they use an animal like a a sheepdog, and they try to move the herd from behind. But in most Eastern cultures, in most Eastern contexts, the shepherd goes out in front of the sheep, and he yells at the sheep, and he, he says, hey, sheep, follow me. Hey, black spots, follow me. Hey, fluffy, over here. I don't know what you name sheep, but whatever they're named... These shepherds would name their sheep and they call out to them and the sheep would come. And you can read about stories about shepherds in Eastern cultures where they'll be together and this flock will mix with this flock and they'll all be together. And you say, how are we going to sort the sheep out? It's really simple. One shepherd walks over here and he calls to his flock and they hear his voice and they know him and he knows his and those sheep walk over this way. The other shepherd walks over to this side and he calls to his sheep and he knows which ones are his and they follow his voice because they know him. And Jesus is speaking to people who are familiar with all of this and he says, look, I'm the good shepherd and I know my people. I know the hairs on their head. That may be more impressive in your case than my case. But he knows us. He knows his people. Thirdly, the good shepherd expects those who believe in him to follow him. Middle chapters of the Gospel of John are beautiful at defining what it means to believe in Jesus. John said, I wrote these things that you believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. What does it mean to believe? John's sort of piecing it together. One of the things he adds here is this idea that those who believe in Jesus follow Jesus. Verse 3 and 4. The gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, he calls them out, and he leads them out, the ones he calls by name. Verse 4, when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. They follow. They don't follow the culture. They don't follow social media. They don't follow coworkers or classmates. They follow Jesus. Can I just remind you this morning that Jesus, if you are a believer, he expects you to follow him? I think sometimes in the Bible Belt we forget that. We've watered the whole thing down to a prayer or a baptism or a ritual or a decision or whatever we've turned it into. All of those things are important. If you've never made a decision for Jesus, we want you to make it this morning. If you've never been baptized, we want you to be obedient in baptism. If you're not a member of a church, we want you to be a member of this church. All of those things are important. But maybe from time to time, we just need to be reminded, Jesus is the good shepherd, and if we're his sheep, we actually ought to be following him. What he tells us to do, we ought to actually do. What he tells us not to do, we have no business doing. He knows us. He expects us to follow. Here's what we expect from him. This is fourth. The good shepherd provides access to the sheep 
and protection for the sheep. He gives us access and he gives us protection. Look at John 10, verse 7. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. The ones before me, thieves, robbers, the sheep don't listen to them. Verse 9, I'm the door. And if you enter by me, you'll be saved. You'll go in and you'll go out and you'll find pasture. Again, this made sense to the people listening to Jesus. Many shepherds in an Eastern cultural context at night, they like to contain the sheep somehow. So if they're close to home, they might have a pen built alongside the house and they sort of move all of the sheep into that pen. If they're out in the wilderness and it's a a rocky mountainous area, they might sort of try to move all the sheep up into a crevice or even a cave of some sorts. If they're in in an area that has brush of some kind, they might even take a a machete or a a hatchet of some kind and chop the brush down and sort of put the brush in a, a circular, sort of making a fence. But in each of those contexts, they leave an opening in the pen beside the house or in the cave or in the brush that they put in a circular pattern, they leave an opening. They don't carry around a big metal gate they bought at uh, Jibos or wherever you buy a big gate these days. They're not lugging that around. They leave an opening, and when they get all the sheep where they're supposed to be, the shepherd himself lays down in the opening, and the shepherd becomes the door. If you've traveled with us to the eastern part of Africa to Kenya, you see this occasionally. Sometimes you can see it when you're flying over a village. I've seen it face to face in Tanzania. These people have cattle, they have livestock, and maybe they have like a stone wall around their home or even their village at times. Maybe they have a a brush pile of thorny bushes and branches sort of piled up in a circular shape. And at night, they get all the livestock back in the pen, and then whoever is the on-duty shepherd just lays down right there in the opening. He's the door. The good shepherd says, I'm the door. I'm the way you get in and out. If you come in through me, you'll be saved. Jesus is going to say the same thing in John 14 when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm the way that you have access to the Father. I'm the way that you have access to life, and I'm the one who protects you. This idea of coming in and going out and, and being in the, f- the fold and out of the fold, it's a, 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 a Hebrew metaphor. It's sort of an image of saying, you're part of us. You're with us. You're coming and going. It means you're here on a legitimate basis. It's not talking about you're in, you're saved, you're out, you lose your salvation, and you can go back and forth. It's saying you belong here. You're one of us. The psalmist says this in Psalm 121. He says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And later in that psalm, he talks about through him, we, we come in and we go out. He gives us access. And he gives us protection. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the door. And lastly, most importantly, the good shepherd died for his sheep. He died for his sheep. Look at John 10, 11. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Look at verse 15. The Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life the sheep. Look at verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life 
that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. That's an important phrase. Up to this point in your mind, you might be thinking, okay, Jesus is he's laying down his life. Is that kind of like a parent sacrificing for their child? Is that sort of like, I'm going to make sacrifices in my life so you can have a better life? And it becomes a little bit more clear when Jesus says, let me explain what I mean. I'm laying it down. No one is taking it from me. No one will take my life, but I'm going to lay it down willingly. I'm going to die willingly. And he says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. I've received this charge from my Father. This is a remarkable truth. It's the heart of the gospel. And it's one of the great, if I could say it this way, plot twists in all of literature. Right? We started off tracing the theme of a shepherd. Just hit pause on John 10 and think with me for a minute about the sheep. I want you to think about the Lamb of God. And I want you to walk with me through the scriptures as we think about some of these words. The Lamb of God. God told Adam and Eve... If you eat of this tree, you die. Pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. If you do what I'm telling you not to do, death is the consequence. And I don't know if you've read Genesis 3 and 4, but they walk out of the garden alive. They don't get to stay in the garden. They have to leave. But they walk out very much physically alive. But if you read what happened to Adam and Eve, you understand that there was a death in the garden. There was death. It wasn't Adam and it wasn't Eve, but it was an animal that died. And you know that happened because they walk out not only alive, but they walk out clothed. Not with the fig leaf special that they had pieced together, but they walk out properly clothed. There was a sacrifice. The animal died so that they could live. What about Abraham? The Lord appears to Abraham. He says to Abraham, take your son, take him up Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. I'll show you the mountain when you get there. So he goes and shows him Mount Moriah. They go up. And if you've read the story, Genesis 22, you know that Isaac, who was supposed to die on that mountain, actually walks down the mountain very much alive. Why? It's because the Lord, at the last moment, provided an animal, a ram caught in the thicket, And the ram died as the sacrifice so that Isaac could live. The animal dies. What about the Passover? God sends plague after plague after plague against Egypt. The last plague is the worst. It's worst, the death of the firstborn throughout all the land of Egypt. And if you've read the story of the Exodus, you know that the night after the Passover, the firstborn in Egypt had died. The firstborn of the Hebrews walked out very much alive. Why? It's because they took the Passover lambs, they slaughtered them, they smeared the blood on the door of the post, and they said, Lord, we believe, we have faith that death will pass over us because there was a sacrifice. The lambs died so that we could live. They reenacted that every Passover. They also reenacted it every time they celebrated the Day of Atonement. You can read about this in the book of Leviticus. It's where it started and it continued throughout their history. Every year, once a year, at the beginning of the year, the Hebrew people gather together. Initially, it's at the tabernacle. Later, it's at the temple. They gather together. They come into the presence of a holy God and they say one thing. We're sinners. 
We've broken your law. We have fallen short. We have not done what we were supposed to do, and we have done all the things we weren't supposed to do. We're sinful people. And rather than being killed on the spot, they all go home very much alive because there's a sacrifice. And they confess their sins on the head of this animal. First the high priest on a bull for his own sins. Then the high priest on behalf of the people on an animal, a goat or a sheep from the flock. They confess their sins and that animal dies as a sacrifice so that they could live. Every piece of this floating around in the Hebrew imagination. Adam lived because the animal died. Isaac walked down the mountain because God provided the sacrifice. We walked out of Egypt with all of our firstborn living because the Passover lambs were slaughtered. We survived another year as God's people because the animal died as a sacrifice. All of that floating around in the Hebrew imagination. And then one day, a half crazy guy out in the wilderness, Corey read this earlier, pipes up and he sees Jesus walking towards him and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God. He doesn't say the good shepherd, does he? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These were not stupid people. They may not have had all all of our scientific uh, designations, but they knew very well that the man that John was talking about was Homo sapien, not Ovis Eris. That was obvious to everyone. That's a man. That's a human being. That is not a lamb. That is not a sheep. That is not a, a goat. That is not one from the flock. That's a human. And John is sort of revealing. This is the big tell. This is the big reveal. Right? These two themes traced all the way through the scriptures. What we really need is a shepherd. We've got to have a lamb, a sacrifice that dies our death. And it all comes together in Jesus. And the plot twist is the true lamb of God who's going to lay down his life for the people is the good shepherd. He's the lamb. He's not going to pull one from the flock. He's going to give his own life. That's what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper together. We don't gather together and take the Lord's Supper and stop and be quiet so that we can say, and it's really a shame what happened to Jesus. Crucifixion must have been bad. I can't imagine what the nails would have felt like. I can't imagine the thorns and, oh, that was rough. Jesus, I'm glad you did that because that would have been bad. We come together at the Lord's Supper and we say nobody took his life from him. He was the Lamb of God, but he was also the Good Shepherd, and he willingly laid down his life for us. He died as a sacrifice so that we could have life, abundant life. All the ones who came before, thieves, robbers, hired hands, Don't listen to them. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door. I'm the one that gives you access to the Father. And I'm also the Lamb of God. I'm going to lay down my life for you. We celebrate that when we take the Lord's Supper together.